Everything's on the line. I have so much to lose. Could it be a bluff? I don't know. No, no. But all I need is the eight of clubs. Go fish, Sally. Good morning, everybody. Oh, when you think about Master of Disguise, what do you think about? I always think about Inspector Clouseau, who thought he was the Master of Disguise. But if I, I have a favorite character that I like to, to, to look at in movies and sort of read about him. His name is Frank Abagnale. And some of you may have seen a movie, oh, about 10 years or so ago with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks called Catch Me If You Can. And it's the semi-true story of a guy named Frank Abagnale who masqueraded as several different professions and did so successfully until he got caught and went to prison. But uh, he, he pretended to be several different people. He pretended to be an airline pilot and a college instructor. He actually taught a course at BYU. Uh, he pretended to be an attorney and pretended to be actually a doctor and did all this before the age of 21 while passing about $2.5 million in hot checks. But as you know, if you saw the movie or if you've read about Frank Abagnale, he was arrested and he went to prison and he had a tough time while he was there. Thankfully, the story ends well because Frank now works for the FBI catching other masters of disguises because he knows how and where to look for them. But it is an interesting question to ask, why do people wear disguises? Because I don't, as you know, I don't want to talk necessarily about people like, you know, Inspector Clouseau or Frank Abagnale. I want to talk about everyday people. I want to talk about you and me. So why do the people wear disguises? And if you consider Frank Abagnale's story, it's pretty clear why he wanted to, to wear different disguises. He wanted to take shortcuts. For instance, there's a price to be paid for being an airline pilot. Um, you have years of training, years of flying smaller craft, working your way up until finally you can, you can fly one of the, the big crafts. So there's a price to be paid, and Frank didn't want to pay that price. He wanted the status, and he wanted to be able to use that identity to pass hot checks. So he just took a shortcut, put on the uniform, learned a few words, started circulating with other airline industry personnel, and voila. There's a price to be paid for being an attorney. Some of you are attorneys. You understand clearly the years in college, law school, learning to try cases or learning to work in your particular field of law. It's, uh, you know, it's a, for those of us on the outside of law, it can look like a very glamorous thing, but you could tell us today it's a very tedious thing at times, and it's, there's a price to be paid for being a good, good attorney, a good trial lawyer. Frank didn't want to pay that price. He didn't want to go to law school. He wanted to cut a corner. He wanted to take a shortcut. There's a price to be paid for being a college instructor. In fact, a high price to be paid, because if you're an instructor in college, you're probably not going to reap that high of an income, but your training costs are going to be pretty much the same as anyone who would go into a field that would be very lucrative. And it's a challenge to be a professor, to stand in front of young people and, and be prepared every time they go to class and give them the information to transform their lives. Frank didn't want to pay that price. Certainly there's a price for being a surgeon. And we have a number of you who are, here, who are surgeons at New Spring, and you could tell us that while the rest of us might look at your lifestyle and after, of course, watching the television shows, and we might think it's a very glamorous thing to be a surgeon. And I'm sure that you would tell us that it is rewarding. 
but you could also tell us about years of college and med school and internships and residencies and nights without sleep and having just about every night of your life interrupted with a call. You could tell us that there's a high price to pay for being a surgeon. Frank didn't want to pay that price, and so he, he cut a corner. He took a shortcut. And that's the, that's the reason why we wear disguises. I was watching television the other day. Let me back up for just a moment. Forgive me for breaking a sentence, but uh, a Carfax intrigues me. I think Carfax is a great thing. Anybody who's gone out to shop for a used car, you, you appreciate Carfax. It's, uh, it's a web-based service where you can put in the, the VIN number, the vehicle identification number of an automobile, and search its history. Track its history. You know, what maintenance was done on this car? Was it a flood car? Was it an accident? How many accidents? What, what was repaired? And, and you can learn the history of an automobile so that you're not blindsided, so that you don't accidentally buy a lemon. Well, to pick up my story, I was watching television the other day, and I, I saw that there's now a similar service for people who are dating. You can do a background check. You can do a car fax on the person you're dating. <laughs> Why do we have to do that? Well, simply put, everybody's looking for a person of integrity, right? You want a man or a woman who'll tell you the truth. You want, you want a man or a woman who, who is what they claim to be. But there's a, price, there's a price to pay for that. If you're a man of integrity today and you keep your word and you're true to your commitments, and you're a man of honor, that's not easy in the world that we live in today. You have to say no to a lot of impulses that other men say yes to. There's a lifestyle that goes with that. There are hills to climb with being a man of integrity. If you're a woman of virtue, if you're a woman of truth, if you're a woman of character, if you're a woman of strength. You know, ladies, let me just take a moment to say this. In the 80s and 90s, we were taught that a strong woman is a woman who presses and gets her way. That's not a strong woman. It's not a strong man. A strong woman or a strong man is someone who can control their impulses, who can live a life of self-control and self-discipline in a world that doesn't. There's a price to be paid to be a woman of character and virtue. And there are just, quite simply, people that don't want to pay that price. They want to cut a corner, and, and if you're looking to date them, they will put on their Sunday best. No, that's a, I guess that's an ancient term, but they will, they, they will put on their best facade their energy, have you, let, me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever met anyone whose energy all went into the facade? There, there was no personal development going on underneath. They, they didn't work on their inner character. All their work was in the image because they're trying to take a shortcut. A shortcut to gain advantage, a shortcut to gain favor, a shortcut to gain perhaps financial advantage. But somewhere along the line, this person became a master of disguises, a disguise, a con man, a con woman. Does anyone come to mind when I ask that question? You, say, you, mean, you mean like my first husband or <laughs> my first wife? Well, there's, a, there's, there's a distinction I want to draw right now because this is a really big distinction. I think a lot of us may not go this far to make this distinction, but I think this is going to be helpful for us. There is, there is a difference between having an inconsistent life and being a con artist, a master of disguise. See, I, I don't think a lot of us think that. For instance, let me, let me just say this. All of us here today, there is a gap between what we say we believe and how we live, right? There is in my life. I mean, I have principles, I have beliefs, I have 
the knowledge of what God teaches me in my life, and I hold that those things are true. Does my life always match up with those? Does my life always measure up to those values and beliefs? No. But here's my point. I'm not deliberately trying to convince you that I'm something that I'm not. In fact, quite the opposite. You guys know from listening to me, I, I tell you what I'm wrestling with. See, there are people that say, well, you know, this person's a hypocrite because their life doesn't match up with what they believe. Not necessarily. If you were here for Cold War, you know that we have two natures. We have, you know, God's spirit in us if you're a Christ follower, and you also have an old nature that you're born with that was broken in a box. And so from time to time, there's going to be a tension between those two. And I'm not trying to let us off the hook. I'm just saying that, yeah, there are a number of us here who are honest to God, God followers, you know, we're people of integrity. It's just that every once in a while, we fail ourselves and we fail the, fail the people that we love. And I promise you, we kick ourselves harder than anybody else kicks us because we've got this gap between what we say we believe and how we really live. All I want you to understand is there's a big distinction between that and somebody who at some point determines they're going to present themselves as someone they're not. And the irony is, this is the irony for, 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 and I was just trying to think about how to communicate this, and I wish I knew how to preach, because if I did, I would get this across to all of us here today. The irony is, we tend to try to be someone we're not, to present our best before people who don't matter that much, and we tend to be the wrong person with the people that matter the most. I can't tell you how many times through the years. It doesn't happen much anymore because New Springs is a different kind of church. But I can, I've, I can tell you through the years, I've, I've had kids tell me, you know, Mark, my mom and dad are just very different people at, when they're around Christ followers than they are the rest of the week. You know, dad's screaming at mom and dropping F-bombs on the way to church, but then as soon as he gets out of the car, he's waving and smiling at everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. What, what difference does his life make to the people that he's waving and smiling to? The difference that really matters is the person in the back seat. I will tell you, you know, I, I'm blessed because I have the goodwill of thousands of people that I don't deserve. But I will tell you the people that matter most to me and their opinions is the woman I'm married to, my three boys, my two daughter-in-laws, and my two granddaughters. Those are the people who matter most. It's what they think, not the crowd. But there's someone that matters even more than that. And whatever you are and whoever you are with the people in your life, there is one person with whom you must be real because your eternity hangs in that balance. Where you go five seconds after you die depends on were you real with this person, and that person is God. And by the way, wouldn't it be a foolish thing to be a phony in front of God? Because the Bible says, we saw this in a talk a few weeks ago, that everything is naked and exposed before God. But it is it's so important that we are who we are with God. When I think about master of disguises in relationship to God, one person comes to mind more than anybody else. His name was Judas. And he was one of Jesus' 12 apostles or disciples. When Jesus picked his posse, which really became the, the first church, he, he picked 12 guys, 12 pretty much ordinary people. And 11 of these 12 changed the world. But one of them was a disaster. 
Literally, he sold Jesus. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he had so upset the religious apple cart that they had put a price on his head, a bounty on him, and they said if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in. And unbelievably, one of Jesus' own, Judas, went to the chief priests and said, how much will you give me, how much money will you give me if I, turn, if I bring him to you, identify him for you, and basically turn him over to you? And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And Judas said, done. What do you think about when you think about Judas? Man, to me, he's the lowest of the low. I think about Osama bin Laden or Attila the Hun or Joseph Stalin or Lee Harvey Oswald. I think about all the worst people I can think of in history. But the irony is, if you could have seen Judas 48 hours before he betrayed Jesus, my guess is that you and I would have liked him. I think we would have been attracted to him. In fact, if we had met Jesus' disciples and we'd gone and we'd shaken hands with each one of them, spent about five or ten minutes interviewing each one of them, my guess is we would have said, those are pretty ordinary guys, but that Judas dude, man, he impresses me. There's a guy who's going someplace. Let me, let me throw seven things at you real quickly. By the way, I always get nervous when a minister's got seven points, all right? These will be quick. You see, I think every once in a while people begin to like, put in the spiritual dipstick to check and say, what's my relationship with God? How can I measure my relationship with God? Well, I got this box checked and this box checked and this box checked, so therefore I must be okay. Well, let's look at some boxes that Judas checked. First of all, Judas had a good, good upbringing. All the other 11 had come from a place called Galilee. Galilee was the wrong side of the spiritual tracks. It was not a real religious place. It was not a real spiritual place. Judas had come from Judea, from Judah, from the part that was considered the holiest part of the land. It was the place where the best synagogues were, the best schools were. The godliest people, so-called most religious people, lived in Judah. And the people of Judah sort of looked down their noses at people who came from Galilee. In fact, when Jesus, when it was announced that even though Jesus was born in Judah, in Bethlehem, but when it was announced that he came out of Nazareth, someone asked, well, can anything good come out of there? Because it just wasn't a great place to come from. In modern day terms, we would say that there aren't too many churches in, in Galilee, not, not very many Sunday schools, not many, not many religious people. It's, it's not the Bible Belt. Judah was the Bible Belt. And Judas was the only one who came from there. I am guessing that Judas probably learned more memory verses in the Bible. He had more Sunday school attendance pins than anybody else I'm, I'm guessing that Judas really impressed everybody with his Bible knowledge and his Bible training. And the reason why I say this, and you'll see why in just a moment, that, that when they started looking for somebody to elect among the 12 to be the treasurer, everybody said, but Judas, Judas. And Jesus had the disciples. <laughs> Third of them were fishermen. Well, that was the bluest of the blue-collar jobs. Those are rough guys. Those are a lot of times, I don't know if these guys were, but boy, they were, they were cussing, drinking. They were, they were rough guys. Can you imagine Jesus going down to the docks and picking his posse and making a third of them, you know, pretty rough guys? Then there was um, Matthew. Matthew had been a tax collector. That was the lowest of the low. The, if you want a modern-day equivalent of Matthew's job, we would say he was an organized crime. That's exactly what tax collecting was. It was state-sponsored organized crime. And then there was Simon the Zealot. Simon was the kind of guy that went around in dark places and sat down with other people who wanted to, you know, start a revolution. And then he sat around and talked about making bombs. Can you imagine? That's Jesus' posse. These are the guys who changed the world. 
But my, my point is, I, I'm thinking that there were, you know, old Matthew over there who had hung with the worst kind of people, been in the worst kind of situations. He had more bad memories than he could possibly shake a stick at. He was thinking, man, I just am so blessed that God chose me. But we should could have grown up like Judas over there. I'm sure the fisherman looked at Judas with all of his polish and all of his shine and all of his Bible knowledge, and they were saying, we wish we could have grown up like Judas. I make this point today because it's a very serious one with me. The kind of talk that I'm giving today, I'm not really sure it resonates that much with New Spring. Because our church is very much a transparent church. We have said we are not for the traditionally religious. You know, we're not for the people who wear a facade. We have said that we are a bunch of we are a bunch of people that realize that we're flawed and frail, and we're trying to just follow God the best way we know how. That is our mantra here at New Spring. But every once in a while, <clears throat> there are people who come in here that have backgrounds like myself in which we've learned a lot about God. And I can tell you something. Let me just tell you firsthand. It is easier to know about God than it is to know God. It is easier to learn the jargon than it is to understand the reality of the concepts. It is easier to just go to church and try to look good than it is to truly have a relationship with God that transforms us from the inside out. Some of us know exactly what that's about. I mean, even though we know that our life is a mess on the inside, if a discussion comes up about the Bible at work, boy, we'll jump right in. Because we've learned so much about the Bible, boy, we can be articulate. But it's a facade. One of the questions that I ask myself as pastor of New Spring is I, I try to sometimes understand something. So many of you, you, you haven't been religious when you came to New Spring, maybe you went to church when you were a kid, but you haven't been to church in ages. You dropped out when you were, you know, in junior high school, and you went to college, and you just weren't even sure you believed in God, and, and you know, your life just went way over here, and you, you really ever thought, well, I don't know that God will ever be in my life if there is a God. But then you came to New Spring, and a friend said, hey, you got to come to this church. It's different. And you came here, and it's like, the light switch went on. And, and, and you write me all the time, you write me, I get letters like this every Monday and Tuesday about, well, Mark, I just never thought I would be able to have a relationship with God, but I came here and it all made sense to me and my life has changed. It's only been six weeks, but, and by the way, please don't stop writing me those because that's what gets me through Monday. And I, I just love, I mean, because it, it is very much a light switch kind of thing. It's like, I came here, it was transformative. I never thought I was ever going to be this close to God, but wow, it's wonderful. But on the other hand, I talk to people who have been in church all their lives, and, and I'm not judging, I'm just concerned for them. It's like I'm thinking, you don't get it. You know a lot of facts, you know a lot of religion, but it's kind of creepy. I don't feel anything real here. Judas had a good background. Number two, he had made a profession of faith. That's a religious term that just simply means at some point in your life you decided to turn around. At some point in your life, you said, I am a person of faith. And Judas did that. Some of us have done that by walking forward in a, in a, in a church service. Some of us have done that simply by, you know, confessing to people, telling people that we have a relationship with God. Judas did that. Number three, Judas was baptized. We're getting ready for baptism, our annual baptism uh, ceremony was called Watermark, and it's awesome. And we ran out to the Hartman Arena, and we just had one service that weekend. Last year, 300 people went public with their faith. And when you're baptized, what happens is when you go under the water, you're saying the old me is dead, 
and there's a new me that has come up out of the water that shows resurrection. It depicts not only our change, that we were dead, but now we're spiritually alive. It also shows everybody that we're identifying with Jesus who died, who was buried, and who rose from the grave, and all our hope is in him. That's what we're saying when we're baptized. But baptism does not make you right with God. Every once in a while, someone will say, well, Mark, I was baptized as a child, so therefore I'm right with God. First of all, there are no children baptized in the Bible. Nobody started doing that until the 4th century. Baptism is something that you do after you put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's not something your parents can do for you. It is your personal story. It is going public with your faith, not your parents' faith. But it is like a wedding ring. You know, a wedding ring does not make you married. Baptism does not make you God's child. We don't wear wedding rings to get married. We wear wedding rings because we have become married. It becomes an external, tangible, visible symbol of an internal, internal, intangible, invisible change. It's going public with our faith. But you know, here's the thing. A person could wear a wedding ring before they got married. It'd be kind of creepy, but you could do it. A person who'd never been married could wear a wedding ring there have been people who have done that. Just as a person could be baptized who had never really had any internal change. That happened with me. When I was a very small kid, I just sort of like, you know, did what I thought was the good thing to do, but I, wasn't, I didn't really have a change in my life. Judas was baptized. Judas was a disciple. Disciple, if you, if, let me just unpack that term for you. If it's a religious term, term it just simply means a, um, a learner. For three and a half years, Judas heard every sermon Jesus ever, ever preached. He heard the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, what does a man profit if he gain the world and lose his soul? Judas heard that. He heard every, every message Jesus preached. I make that point because every once in a while someone will say, well, Mark, I listen to your preaching, I listen to your sermons, and I know I must be okay because I listen to your sermons. Thank you for listening. My sermons can't get you into heaven. They can't even get me into heaven. Actually, the only thing about my sermons is they scare me because when I, I've always had this horror that I'm going to stand before God and God's going to say, okay, Mark, your judgment's going to be based on your sermons. <laughs> How'd you live up to them? Terrifies me. On top of that, Judas saw every miracle. When Jesus turned water into wine, when he walked on the stuff, Judas saw it. Number five, Judas actually had a position in the first church. The disciples really constituted the, the beginning of the church. And when they elected an official to keep the treasure, the treasury, to keep the money, they elected Judas. I remember many years ago, I was, in fact, this was when I was very young. I was um, a pastor of a church in Houston, associate pastor. And one of the jobs that I had was overseeing all of our student ministries. And there were a number of young students at University of Houston that liked to just go with me and talk to people. In fact, it's amazing how many of those guys are pastors now around the country. But I remember there were a group of them that went and talked to a fellow and they said, Mark, we've talked to this guy, but we really can't get through to him. He's going to have surgery to have his voice box removed. And we feel like if you could go talk to him, then maybe he would get it. So I went to the house a little while later, and by that time they weren't there. And so I went the following Monday, I believe it was, to the hospital got there just before they wheeled him into surgery and held his hand, had a prayer with him, but we really didn't have a chance to talk. It was several weeks later when this man was back at his house that I went over to see him. It was actually breakfast time. I still sit in my mind. He was eating breakfast. And I said, let me just talk to you while you eat. And so I did. 
And, and, and his voice box had been removed by this point, and he had a, an electronic device that he would lay up beside his throat, and it would pick up, I guess, the impulses of his throat, and there would be sort of a mechanical representation of the words. It took me a while to get to where I could understand what he was saying, but after a while I could. Finally, at the end of our conversation, I asked him, I said, do you have a, a personal relationship with God? And I remember he said, no, no, I don't. So I said, well, would it be okay with you if I share with you how that you could have a relationship with God, which is what I do in, in all my messages, pretty much. And then I, I said, would you like to pray with me to receive him like I do at the end of our services? And he said, yes, I would. And I can still remember as he laid that mechanical device up beside his neck and he called on God to be a savior, prayed with me. I held his hand, prayed with him again, thanked him for the time and was so excited that he had made the decision turned to walk away, and just before I got out the door, I heard him call my name. And when I turned around, he said to me, I just want you to know, I was a deacon in the Helmer Street Baptist Church for 20 years, but I didn't know God. So you don't get brownie points for, for being some position. I mean, even, even being a minister, because number six, not only was Judas a person who was an official in the first church, so to speak, Judas preached. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, the Bible says that Jesus sent out the 12 to preach. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says that Jesus sent out the 12 to do miracles. Now, please don't ask me after the service why that was. I don't know. It's just that there was a time when Judas did what I do. He stood in front of people and he told people about Jesus. And I'm guessing that there were people that chose to believe Jesus through Judas's preaching. Amazing. Number seven, the one that amazes me the most was that Judas had the touch of Jesus in his life. Certainly that was true in a metaphorical sense or an existential sense because there was a time when Jesus personally handpicked Judas and said, Judas, come follow me. But it was true in a very tangible sense because on the last night that Judas would have an exchange with Jesus, it was the night before Jesus' arrest. It was the, what we would call the Last Supper. In effect, Jesus was having the Passover or the Seder with his disciples. <laughs> the disciples had been arguing over who was the greatest. It didn't matter because they were all, as the Bible says, unlearned and ignorant men. What difference does it make who's the greatest among unlearned and ignorant people? But they've been arguing over who was the greatest. And they got in there that night to have the Last Supper with Jesus. And, if you, and as I've shared with you before, you know, we all have this idea from the painting that they all said that this long table and Jesus sat in the middle. But, you know, that's not the way it was. People didn't eat at tables back then. They, they ate lying on the floor on mats in semi-reclining positions. They'd have their head, you know, in one hand and they'd eat with the other hand. Now, I want to be as genteel about this as I possibly can. But if you're lying in a group of people, 13 people in this particular case, in a, in a room like this eating, somebody's feet are going to be in your face. It's really important that they wash feet, especially 13 guys. Been walking in hot Mediterranean roads. Now, it was the job of the lowest servant in the house to wash the feet. The disciples didn't have any servants. So if there were no servants, it was the job of the least important, sometimes the youngest member there, who, but whoever was less, the least important person would be the one who would have to wash everybody else's feet. Well, disciples weren't looking for the least important. They were looking for the most important. And, and, and I'm thinking it went like this. There were guys saying, you know what? I may not be number one, but I'm sure not last. 
And so it was just kind of a standoff. They were all just looking at each other with dirty feet. And in one of the most beautiful stories in history, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the one Colossians 1.17 says holds everything together, got up, girded his robe, got a basin of water and a towel, and the Son of God went around and started washing these fishermen bomb makers' feet. The moment that I'm concerned about right now was the moment when Jesus came to Judas. Because at this point, Judas already had the 30 pieces of silver in his knapsack. What was he thinking when the Son of God reached down and took his foot in his hand? Wouldn't that have been a good time to say, Lord, I have really, really screwed up. But not even then. You know why? Judas was worried about what the others thought. He knew Jesus knew who he was. Jesus already said, one of you is going to betray me. Judas knew Jesus had supernatural power. I don't know if he knew he was God, but he knew he had supernatural power. And for Jesus to just look around the room and say, one of you is going to betray me. Judas knew Jesus knew who he was. But it was the fact that the others didn't know. Man, Judas was so clean cut, he was so much the perfect guy, that even after Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me, it's the one that I dipped the sop, bread into the sop with, the rest, of the rest of the disciples, when Judas got up to leave after that, they just figured Judas was going to run some errand for Jesus. They just could not believe it could be him. And Judas loved that. He loved the fact that others thought highly of him. Even if Jesus knew what he was, he still wasn't going to break the mask. There were two meals that night. There was the Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, there was a particular place where the host would take a piece of bread, he would dip it into a paste of bitter herbs, and he would hand it to someone. And whoever he handed it to, that was the person of honor. That was perhaps the, his best friend. And when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and dipped it into the bitter herbs, he turned and he handed it to Judas as if to say, you're my most honored friend. But Judas still didn't change, and so finally Jesus leaned over to him and said, whatever you're going to do, you go do it now. It was after that point that Jesus reached over to the table and took two things that would have been there for the Passover supper. He took a cup of wine and he took a piece of bread, and he held it up and he said, guys, I'm starting a brand new covenant, a brand new deal. Well, Jeremiah the prophet had talked about it. He had said there's going to be a time when there's going to be a new covenant, not based on laws and not based on animal sacrifices, but a new and a better covenant. And in this covenant, it's grace, and it's anyone who has sinned can understand clearly that he can have a relationship with God. And Jesus said, tonight, I'm instituting this new covenant. And he said, fellas, the symbols of this covenant are the bread, which is my body, which is broken for you, and the juice, which is a symbol of my blood that was shed for you. I find it very interesting that although Judas did all these other things, <laughs> he wasn't part of the first communion. Why do you think that is? I have a theory, and a pretty strong one. Through the years, I've heard preachers preach about the Lord's Supper or communion. And some of the preachers that I've heard have almost left me with the impression that, boy, if you've got anything wrong in your life, you're not ready to receive communion. Well, when I look at the guys who stayed, it seemed like they had a lot of issues. What I pick up is this. 
The new covenant, the Lord's Supper, communion, it is for sinners, just not for pretenders. See, God knows what to do with your and my failures. What he can't handle is if we're trying to make other people think we're something we're not. We're going to receive communion right now. And if you say, Mark, I know I've got issues in my life and I'm owning up to them and taking responsibility, the Lord's table is for you. In fact, Jesus' blood was shed for sin. His body was broken so that we could have a right relationship with God. You say, Mark, I'm not even sure I'm worthy. I have so many faults and failures in my life and there's still stuff I can't get on top of. Then the Lord's table is still for you. Seems to be a place for sinners. Just not a place for pretenders. I'm going to invite you forward today. Someone will dismiss your line of seats and you can come forward and receive communion. The balcony, you'll be served up there. But uh, if you will, just come get the bread and the juice and take it back to your seats. And in just a few moments, we'll do what Jesus and his disciples did the first time almost 2,000 years ago. Take these hands and lift them up, for I have not the strength to praise you near enough, for I have nothing, I have nothing without you. Take my voice and pour it out. Let it sing the songs of mercy I have found For I have nothing, I have nothing without you And all my soul needs is all your love to cover all the world will see I have nothing without you. Take my body and build it up. May it be broken as an offering of love. For I
Just as I am. 
The beauty of the cross is that there's one who has redeemed my soul. The beauty of the cross is that I'm finally free and letting go. The beauty of the cross is that your grace has found me just as I am. sinful soul could only be redeemed by the blood of the sinless king so you came to the world that you have made conquered sin on the cross and you rose from the grave love the lyric of the song. The beauty of the cross is that your grace has found me just where I am. That was Judas's problem. He didn't want to admit that where he was wasn't a good place. He wanted everybody to think he didn't need God. But for those of us who know we do need him, we celebrate the fact that his grace has found us just where we were. Religion says, tie your life all up. You know, make it a present to God. Just Get everything together, and when you get it all together, then you can hand it to God. That may sound good, but for those of us who have tried that and realized that there's no way you can get it all together by yourself, you know that what really works is just coming to God just like you are with all the brokenness and all the dysfunction and all the problems and things that you can't solve, and just saying, God, here I am. If you can do anything with me, I'm giving you my life. If you've experienced that, I ask you to join me by eating and by drinking. Well, you know, Judas' story didn't end well. He let his pride drag him into hell. When he couldn't get the men he sold Jesus to to take the money back, he went home, found a rope, tied it to a tree, put the other end around his neck, and committed suicide. You guys know I have a vivid imagination. In my mind, I always think it didn't have to end that way. Because you and I know God well enough to know that 
If Judas had had a different way of dealing with things, his eternity would have been totally different. In my imagination, I always think about that scene where Jesus is with the disciples on the beach after his resurrection. And Jesus is finishing business with Peter, you know, and the rest of them. And by the point that they're all kicking back and lying on the beach after eating the fish that Jesus fried. I sort of see in my mind this lonely, forlorn figure that's off in the distance realizing that he can never be part of this group again or at least thinking he can't be part of this group again because of what he did. Suppose that guy's Judas. But imagine, if you will, please, that there was a moment where Judas just overcome with what he did, got up off his feet and ran to where Jesus was and fell at Jesus' feet and threw his arms around Jesus and said, Lord, I'm so sorry I sold you. You and I both know what would have happened at that moment. The very one Judas soul would have reached down and pulled his head to his chest and hugged him and said, Judas, I forgive you. That's what would have happened if Judas hadn't let his pride drag him to hell. That's the problem with pretenders. They're so worried about breaking the masks that they're never willing to be who they really are with God. In every service at New Spring, just about, I always offer people a chance to pray a prayer to invite Jesus into their lives. And maybe it's you today. Maybe you're thinking about this and you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm ready to be open with God. I'm ready to just have things right with God. If it's all a gift and if it's through God's forgiveness and if it's God taking me just where I am, I can sign on for that. Well, I want you to, my, that's, I mean, I'm totally unimportant. God wants you to. And I'm going to pray a prayer, and it's not that I have some kind of magic formula or magic words. It's just this is a prayer that just says yes to God. It's what you believe on the inside that matters. The Bible says, whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart is saved. The Bible says that we are made right with God by believing in our inner person. That was Judas's problem. His inner person never believed. But if that's you and you're ready, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. In fact, if we could all just pray for a moment. But for those of you who are ready to pray this prayer with me, you just pray. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can just pray it silently in your heart. But what matters is that you're calling out to God. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I admit it. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not blaming someone else for it. I am a sinner. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sin. And I do believe that he arose from the grave. Today I'm asking you to come into my life. Forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for keeping your word to me. In Jesus' name.